Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Today is part two of our podcast series on headaches. In part one, we covered identifying the serious headache, the international classification of headache disorders, migraine headaches, and the biopsychosocial considerations and other tips for headache management. In today's podcast, we'll be covering tension headaches, cervicogenic headaches, how to explain your rationale for management and the safety of manual therapies uh, for managing headaches. Joining me once again on the ACA podcast is Associate Professor Peter Tushin, a well-known chiropractic researcher, academic, and health expert. Now, I did go through Peter's uh, CV in, I won't say detail, but uh, in in depth uh, in the last podcast. But just to remind you, Peter is uh, retired from Macquarie University after 27 years as an Associate Professor. His areas of interest include research and the relationship of posture with neck pain, headaches and migraine, chronic pain syndromes, and the relationship of vertebral artery dissection and stroke. Peter conducted one of the largest ever randomized controlled trials for chiropractic and migraine and recently completed a systematic review of manual therapy for migraine. Hi, Peter, and thanks for coming back to the ACA podcast. Hi, Anthony. Pleasure to be back again. So let's start with tension type headaches. Uh, it's quite a common uh, headache, one that chiropractors would see a lot in their practice. What are we looking for when we're going to make a diagnosis of tension type headache? Yeah, so uh, tension headache are definitely are very common. They're the, the most common headache. Um, and so traditionally it always was described as a, a band-like pain around the head and the neck. Um, so the severity on a visual analog score is generally between two to up to six or seven. So they're not described as as severe headaches typically. Um, but of course, you can get a bad tension headache and it almost mimics a migraine. Um, so sometimes people will have uh, nausea with the tension headache, vomiting, photophobia, phonophobia, and osmophobia, but it's nowhere near as as paramount and it tends to be very transient. So just because um, the person does describe nausea and vomiting um, doesn't mean it's actually a migraine. It can be a tension headache. Having said that, at the end of the day, we're looking to see whether or not a person has uh, problems that us as chiropractors may be able to help with. So identifying uh, upper back and neck problems and seeing if there's something there that you might be able to help them with is the key question. Um, There is, and we'll discuss this a little bit later, of course, is the the evidence so far for uh, manual therapies, including spinal manipulation for tension headache, is still uh, reasonably limited. And a lot of it goes back to just this um, variation in the symptoms pattern. So it, it makes them a very heterogeneous condition, as in they're not similar. 
and when you start designing uh, research studies, it makes the study quite uh, difficult to compare to others. So it's almost like you know not comparing apples to apples. And so as a researcher, you want to really see that you know, you're getting the same conditions when you analyse the effectiveness of the treatment. So the name tension headache suggests stress is a factor. Is that the the trigger for most of these headaches? Um, stress is definitely a factor, but the term is a, a, a bit of a misnomer. Um, it's it's tightness and tension in structures rather than tension as in stress. But certainly stress is a, a substantial common uh, trigger and a substantial effect. It's interesting you say and you explain why um, there's limited research on manual therapies for for tension headaches, uh, which is surprising in many ways because it seems to be a very common type of headaches that chiropractors see in their practice. And I would imagine most chiropractors would say they have uh, fairly good success with these sorts of headaches as well. Uh, As Mm. far as some of the key research that is out there that chiropractors should be aware of, um, what's there in the literature and, and what do chiropractors need to be aware of? Yeah, so there are some good systematic literature reviews um, of the evidence and what might be confusing it is often broadly just called physical therapy. Um, so spinal manipulation is a part of that, but sometimes it's only um, one small section of it. So having said that, of course, uh, chiropractors will often talk to patients about exercise therapy or or give people exercises as part of their treatment they'll also give people advice about other uh, treatments to help as well like for example uh, massage therapy or they might even provide massage therapy as part of their treatment so if we broadly say physical therapies um, then there are some some good papers to read and uh, I, I think you mentioned last time we'll have these links on the uh, on the website for people to look up yeah absolutely um, there is one uh fernandez de la pena and I, I apologize for my terrible uh spanish um they did a good uh review of physical therapy for headaches in 2016 and uh, there's also another one published in in 2021 by uh, gomez um there's a few other ones which i put in as well uh which are large systematic literature reviews, um, but they actually found that the evidence was inconclusive. So I think as a, as a clinician, it's important to understand some of the limitations of the research. So when we're using, when we're describing to patients what they can have, um, we look at whether or not the evidence is actually strong. Um, the evidence themselves in these kind of studies uh, are often uh, limited, so you'll you'll see when you read them, they talk about a, a high risk of bias, and particularly uh, in physical therapies, one of the things that contributes to this high risk of bias, and therefore uh, reduces the the strength of the conclusions, is blinding of participants. Yeah. Um, traditionally, in um, pharmaceutical research, you know, with the gold standard, you can have a double blinded study no problems because the 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 tablets can look identical to everybody including the people giving the tablets so no one actually knows what's the therapeutic uh, substance and what isn't Um, physical therapies in particular for us spinal manipulation you just can't do that 
And so unfortunately, uh, often studies involving manual therapies like spinal manipulation um, suffer uh, because of that lack of blinding. Um, And it's a frustration because, you know, people will say, oh, the conclusions aren't strong. But when you actually go into the detail and you look at the figures, the figures seem, the, the, the data, the change in the headache pattern seem quite strong and robust, but it's marked down because of these uh, risks of bias. Mm. I've often wondered about that. And obviously from a scientific methodology perspective, to narrow things down to a, a single intervention and to take all other parameters out of the equation, we can see the value of that. Um, when Sorry. it comes to a, a therapeutic encounter or you know, that the moment of time that you spend with a chiropractor and you receive adjustment, it's really not about a single thing. It's not just about that. It's about everything that encompasses that. And so I'm often right. sort of uh, thought that, okay, yes, I can understand why that's a limitation, but also is the methodology in the first place a limitation? Should we just be saying what happens in this encounter versus this encounter, despite the yeah. fact that there's multiple things happening? And so this is uh, what sometimes happened, described as pragmatic studies. So you're looking at an an overall effect rather than uh, honing it down to individual components. And and that's uh, quite difficult. So with uh, studies with physical therapies, getting those individual components and and excluding all the other potential effects is quite complicated. And when you do that, you often then have to have quite large studies with large sample size. So you can compare all of those those variables yep. to different groups to make sure that, you know, yes, is it just this one particular aspect that has got the results? Um, but at the end of the day, clinicians do that. You know, we, we offer pragmatic therapy. So yep. if somebody comes in and for whatever reason you find that adjustments of the neck uh, aren't working or the patient doesn't tolerate them for whatever reason, then we might move away from adjustments and start doing some other manual therapies uh, that can still be effective. That's, you know, that's clinical knowledge. And so when we go back to, to definitions of evidence-based practice, there's there, there's the use of the available evidence, but there's also clinicians' application as well as patients' uh, needs. So um, there's a strong evidence on what evidence is there, but at the same time, you know, we we shouldn't forget that there's still that clinical appropriateness and also patients' uh, needs. Yes, that three pronged approach is is really the important thing at the end of the day. Um, Absolutely. Moving on to uh, and just sort of making our way into cervicogenic headaches, and I want to talk a little bit about you know the classification of this. We've we've said already that uh, chiropractic care is likely to have a role for many people with migraines and tension headaches, but I guess cervicogenic headaches, as far as the ICHD uh, classification is concerned, they're really saying that this is the headache where it's recognized to be caused from neck problems as opposed to um, the neck problems being a potential trigger for other types of headaches. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so for a long time, the uh, international classification um, system didn't put much emphasis at all on cervicogenic headache, cervicogenic headache, um, because it was very much thought to just be a secondary symptom. Um, but And they did modify the definition a little bit, which now makes it um, uh, more likely to be um, identified. 
So initially, you had to have uh, effectively radiological evidence of a net problem before that the the, the definition would be um, accepted. So now, because people are decreasing the use of imaging, um, they've modified the definition a little bit. And so I think the key thing for the clinicians, the chiropractors listening, is the ability to reproduce uh, the headache pain during a physical examination. So if you can reproduce what the patient describes as their headache, then that, I think, clearly shows that that is a a significant trigger. Um, And as we discussed in the last podcast, it is complex to say it's a cause. Um, There's not the evidence to say it's a cause, but it can certainly be a trigger factor or associated with the the headache, tension headache and migraine. So I think that's the key thing. Um, there's, There's even more potential controversy if we were to start discussing um, cervicogenic migraine. Um, I think a lot of neurologists would just say the neck does not uh, have anything to do with migraine, mm. whereas us as clinicians would argue strongly, well, yes, it does. Absolutely. Um, we spoke last podcast about the international classification of headache disorders. And um, if we look up cervicogenic headache, it's you have to go a fair way into it. It's a 11.2.1. So it's a fair way into yeah. the document before you come across it. But I I was interested to note the rationale for these headaches. Um, It seems, though, there is quite an an accepted understanding about the neurological relationship here. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And in particular, I'm talking about the the cervical and trigeminal sort of link. Yeah, so there is the... the they have mapped out the uh, trigeminocervical nucleus or the trigeminocervical complex, whatever term you want to use. There's now been quite a lot of studies looking at um, that uh, that structure is an important part for headaches. Um, and so that's allowed, I think, this um, this alteration of the definition to, to be included. And, you know, they've been able to now do blocks to show that... Um, anesthetic blocks it can reduce this type of headache so it clearly shows that that uh, that nucleus that complex is a substantial contributing factor to it um, so being able to um, reduce produce the the pain and so the, the definition comes back to you know there's this temporal relationship between the neck problem and the headache so if you know people come along saying I feel neck pain, then I get a headache, then that temporal relationship seems pretty strong. Um, and at the same time, we can then say, and it's substantially or significantly changed um, in parallel with the treatment that I provided. So if you start to try and improve the neck problem and the headache starts to Im- improve and change, well, you've got a pretty strong argument to say there's clearly a link. Mm. Um, Even if you can't necessarily um, substantially show uh, poor range of motion in the neck, and I think this was a problem for a long time. You know, people can come in, you do their neck range of motion, and their neck range of motion seems okay, but yet they still describe this headache. And as we know as clinicians, you can have, you know, quite substantial alterations in, in segmental motion but still have reasonable overall range of motion. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the thing. These provocative 
um, um, manoeuvres, if we uh, do a, a, a physical examination and the person says, yes, that's exactly the type of, of pain I've experienced, you don't then necessarily have to do a diagnostic block to show that that, that um, neck structure is is where the, the pain is coming from. Yes, we'll save that for the research and just stick to the practical <laughs> stuff. Um, there's some pretty good research out now uh, on cervicogenic headache, not all by chiropractors, mind you, but what should chiropractors be aware of as far as the research? What are the key studies? Um, yeah, look, there was a really good study published in uh, 2022 um, in chiropractic and manual therapies. Um, and so that was a, a quite a large uh, a systematic literature review. Um, and it uh, showed that there was evidence to suggest that um, cervicogenic headache does respond well with, with manual therapies like spinal manipulation. Um, there's also some older uh, studies. There's one by uh, uh, Dunning 2016. He's actually a physiotherapist, but they did a randomised controlled trial showing that thoracic manipulation can actually uh, take a lot of tension out of the neck and is as effective, if not more effective, the neck mobilisation. So um, that's, a that's I think, a good study to look up. Um, uh, one of my um, ex-colleagues at Macquarie University, Matt Fernandez, he did a, a systematic literature review, uh, which I think was published in 2020 or 2021, um, and uh, they concluded that there is um, evidence to show that uh, cervicogenic headache um, does respond with uh, manual therapies like spinal manipulation. So again, that validation for a trial or treatment uh, has been established. And once again, we'll make those papers available to our podcast listeners. Um, and I think just while I remember too, Anthony, of course, the flip side is what's the other alternatives? So if somebody's mm. coming in with these types of conditions, what else can they do as a treatment? And pharmaceutical treatments are the same. You know, most, many, sorry, many pharmaceutical treatments for uh, tension, headache, and cervicogenic headache don't have strong evidence. Yeah, yeah. So we need to be aware that, yes, okay, our evidence could be better, but so could theirs. 100%. Um, all right, I've got a patient who I'm seeing with cervicogenic headaches and I want to write a report to a GP. What are the important things I need to um, uh, include in that report, apart from the fact to keep it brief and pertinent? Yeah, I think that's the key thing, just... Just try and keep it brief and, and pertinent. They are busy people. So um, just try and um, describe the, the neck findings. I'm not using jargon. Um, I, I know we use the term adjustments all the time, but the average GP wouldn't really understand what we mean by that. So I'd, I'd always just use spinal manipulation, spinal manipulative therapy, um, looking at a description of, of, of what the patient's experience. So, you know, where their neck pain is, what level of pain, visual analog scores. Um, if you've done a neck disability index, NDI, that shows, again, you're looking at, you know, good evidence to measure outcomes um, and a description of aggravating and relieving factors. And, you know, if you've um, produced this report after they've had some um, treatment and they're already starting to describe improvement, then I think that um, that can be a, a, a good starting point for hopefully hopefully fairly uh, more conversations with the GP. 
Fantastic. And I think also maybe even reference to the ICHD to show that it's a clear diagnosis that's been made and your understanding in that area. Yeah, absolutely. And in our, often I um, will put in a, a sentence as well saying there's there's lots of evidence and here's, here's some studies. I've got copies of the studies if you're interested because to me that substantiates that, yes, there is evidence and, you know, some medical practitioners still think that there's not a lot of evidence for chiropractic treatment for a range of conditions, including headaches and migraines. So I, any chance I get, I, I uh, throw in, well, here's the studies. Fantastic. Um, now, look, obviously medication is the most commonly used treatment worldwide to manage uh, headaches. And, and most people, certainly that I see, understand that medication has a level of risk. Uh, most, even if they do uh, regularly take it, don't necessarily like taking it. Um, there's a risk in all sorts of things. Uh, therapies and, and, and managements, uh, there's risk with spinal adjustments or, or manipulation. How do we compare these level of risks? And in particular, how do we communicate this to patients and other health professionals? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And you, you've identified correctly that people are aware that there's a risk with all treatments. Um, they don't necessarily uh, understand or uh, realise how much of a risk some of the pharmaceuticals are. So, you know, you don't want to uh, frighten and, and scare people, but just being factual about here's some of the studies that show the level of risk with long-term uh, NSAID use, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and the COX-2 inhibitors are very similar, really. Uh, long-term use, there's evidence that shows it does increase the risk for heart attack, myocardial infarction, potential stroke. And so, you know, that's what I was just mentioning uh, whilst the evidence for manual therapy spinal manipulation isn't strong, the evidence for risks associated with pharmaceuticals is also there as well. Um, one of the things I've found in, in times that I've done presentations to medical conferences where, where I'm often the only chiropractor, um, naturally I will get uh, questions about safety and you know, you can present a lot of information about safety, but I think the thing that seemed to work the best, uh, I actually explain our professional indemnity. So I say, you know, we've got, we have policies that have 10 to $20 million coverage. And then, you know, I often ask the audience for an estimate of what my premiums are. And the medical practitioners always say, you know, 20, 30, $50,000 per annum. And when I say, well, yes, mine's somewhere between one to $2,000 per annum, um, that's it. You know, yeah. it works unbelievably effective uh, because, as we know, um, the actuaries that assess risk for policies and premium don't care about anything other than what's the risk. Mm. And so if they come along saying our premium is this, then they've assessed us to be at pretty low risk. Absolutely. And especially when there's uh, well over 300,000 visits to chiropractors in Australia every week, um, you know, th there's not that many of these sort of cases uh, coming up, that's for sure. Do, do I want to speak just briefly, just touch on the um, cerebrovascular potential risk. And, uh, and I say potential because obviously there's some studies that talk now about it being more of a temporal relationship than a causal one. Um, what's your sort of view on that? Yeah, look, unfortunately, um, vertebral arteries uh, can be weakened for a whole variety of reasons and sometimes people don't uh, haven't identified 
those reasons so they're unaware that their arteries are actually weak. And so any activity that involves the neck may be the final event that happens just before the artery finally dissects. And there's lots of studies and lots of case reports showing that people have done a wide variety of sports, a wide variety of activities, and that was the last thing they did before finally um, the vertebral artery gave up. And so it's exactly the same for chiropractors. People might come in, and, and unfortunately, as we know, often with vertebral artery dissection, the first uh, symptoms that people get are headaches or neck pain. And so someone comes into a chiropractor with a, a headache that's due to the artery dissecting, it's quite complex to identify that this is actually due to the vertebral artery and not other, some other cause. I think that's a really good point there. And and like you said, when you balance that out with uh, risk of medication, uh, with looking at professional indemnity um, uh, and the cost for parapetors versus other health professions, I think that um, it puts us certainly in a very low risk range, I would think. Yeah, we've got a strong, strong evidence to say that um, there are studies that show it can be therapeutic and there are studies that show that it's a very low risk treatment so when you weigh up the two uh providing a course of treatment for headaches migraines um are justified in the last podcast we spent a bit of time on the biopsychosocial aspects and particularly around stress uh, and its role in headaches um what about other techniques uh you know cranial adjusting or postural advice uh what pillows people should be using what are what are some of the other things that you might suggest or you might um, uh, be providing to patients and is there any evidence in, in, with with those uh, ancillary type of procedures? Yeah, I, I haven't seen um, much evidence for that, but I, I haven't looked for that evidence for a while. So um, it's not an area that I'm strong with. Um, it, it sounds almost intuitive that, you know, a, a good pillow would substantially reduce neck tension and therefore improve um, headaches. But in some of the research I did with uh, postures at work when I was working in um, occupational health and safety or workplace health and safety nowadays, um, again, the evidence of, of changing, modifying ergonomics and doing other activities differently at workplaces, um, the evidence wasn't conclusive at all as how much effect that um, reduced uh, neck problems and, and neck pain or headaches. So, um, but as I said, it's not an area that I have looked at uh, recently. Um, so there could be some great studies out there. Um, I'm not aware of them. Mm. And I guess with a lot of these things, there's, um, as we said earlier, you know, in that three-pronged approach, you know, be aware of the research that's out there that's relevant to what you're doing and that's of course particularly uh spinal adjusting um and then experience and patient preference and beyond that it's a scientific protocol a trial of care you know and it might be you try different things whether it be a magnesium supplement whether it be a, a contoured pillow uh whether it be meditation um, and i think some degrees you're probably guided by what the stresses are in a person's life as to what things they might need to be addressing yeah, I think that's a fair comment. And and what I would say is, you know, if people see good studies, um, share them around. Like yeah. we're all we're all in the same profession. So if there's a great study that comes out and people think that other, you know, everybody should be aware of this, 
terrific. But just also a word of caution, you know, really uh, make sure you read the study pretty clearly and make sure that, um, you know, the conclusions haven't been overstated um, and, you know, getting us into trouble, uh, which, again, as clinicians, we do that. Somebody comes up and they show they've got great results with a certain type of technique and everybody thinks, wonderful, this is what I want for my patients. But, you know, when you look at uh, what studies have been done to support that, the, the evidence is still a bit limited. Yeah, that's uh, useful as a guide, but uh, it's not necessarily something that uh, you become a disciple of our technique based on one simple and quite often flawed study. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a very good comment. All right. This has been a wonderful chat, uh, Peter. We've covered a lot in the first two podcasts. Uh, I'm looking forward to podcast three, where we'll pretty much cover everything else that we haven't already talked about, such as chronic daily headache, medication overuse headaches, cluster headaches, and so on. Uh, thanks so much for your time on the podcast today. Anytime. Always happy to help. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. And I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.